You know, I once thought about getting into reenacting the American Civil War. I just couldn't get everything lined up. This is the Veteran Wargamer. This is the Veteran Wargamer. I'm your host, Jay Arnold. This is episode four. Today I talk with Pat Gilliland about historical reenacting. This episode is brought to you by King's Hobbies and Games. King's Hobbies and Games is a dealer in premium painting and modeling supplies, as well as custom 3D printed models for the Wargamer. Recently, Tim released a 3D printed Max Pro MRAP. Now, if you're not familiar, MRAPs are mine-resistant, ambush-protected vehicles uh, in use by the U.S. military uh, all over the world, really, as well as other outfits. And basically, an MRAP is an armored truck. The very first time I saw a Max Pro version of the MRAP was in the back of a U.S. Air Force C-17. I was in charge of getting cargo and personnel to and from uh, our camp uh, to the airfield in Herat, seven miles down the highway. So it was quite a surprise when we rolled up on the C-17, and lo and behold, there in the back was the Max Pro. And uh, went up to the <laughs> loadmaster, and he said, this thing for you? And I looked at the paperwork he had, and I said, yeah, I guess it is. And he said, you ever driven one of these before? And I said, I've never even seen one of these before. And he looked at me for a second, and I looked back, and he said, well, who's going who's gonna to drive this thing off my bird? And I looked at him for a few more seconds, and he looked back, and I said, well, I, I guess I will. So definitely a memorable experience for yours truly, but uh, you know I'm not in Leavenworth, so obviously I didn't break the airplane getting in, getting it off off of there. So you know you really need to check out what Tim and his team of designers are doing. the The results really speak for themselves. You can see the results at KingsHobbiesAndGames.com. Again, that's KingsHobbiesAndGames.com. Also check out the Facebook page, facebook.com slash kingshobbies. Again, that's facebook.com slash kingshobbies. After this short break, my discussion with Pat Gilliland about reenacting. And we are back. I am joined by Pat Gilliland. Uh, Pat, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Jay. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. I'm I'm really excited to talk about reenacting because it's something that I've seen from afar, and I've had a little bit of uh, interaction with at various events. But it's not anything that I've personally gotten into. I've got quite a few gaming buddies that are into it, and I thought that it'd be an interesting perspective to talk about gaming from the viewpoint of of a reenactor. So I appreciate you coming on the show today. Oh well, thanks for having me on. I much appreciate it. Um, so just like with everybody else, what makes you a veteran wargamer? Well, um, basically my background, I go all the way back to uh, Panzerblitz, which we started playing with my dad. Well, that must have been uh, early 70s, I guess, mid-70s, whenever that came out. And mm-hmm. I've been gaming pretty much ever since then. Uh, did the usual route of D&D, got into a bunch of the Avalon Hill, SPI, all the board games there, squad leader, of course. Uh, a lot of role playing when that first came out. Uh, moved on to miniatures a little bit. Uh, did some micro armor uh, back in the 80s. 
And around that time, I would never uh, call myself a veteran, but I was uh, was a member of the reserves up here, and I was training to fight Russians over in uh, in Norway and Germany. Thank God, nothing happened with that. Mm-hmm. Then there was a long stretch of uh, had to go to work and make some money, and then uh, family comes around, and children comes around, and career comes around, and uh, didn't do much. I uh, was always still interested; had some stuff uh, still kicking around, and. Uh, 2009, I got back into Ancients, started with that, uh, with the old DBA, DBMM, and uh, now mostly I play World War II, a little VSF, or actually a lot of VSF, uh, Space 1889. Mm-hmm. And that's Victorian science fiction. That is Victorian science fiction, so steampunk, but with perhaps a little less of the tech. Uh, mm-hmm. It's also pseudo-colonial, so uh, you can kind of do colonial wargaming without, uh, without getting into the issue of... Uh, you know the uh, certain cultural sensitivities. Certain cultural sensitivities. Excellent way of putting it. So, yeah. Anyway, it's great fun. I love the miniatures. So. Yeah. Okay. And um, I guess what we, based on that, I guess we need to. When, when did you start uh, reenacting? I'm actually. Um, well, we actually, because it's my wife and I, we're pretty much neophytes. It's uh, our second season. Um, came, came to the game really late. I'm in my uh, early 50s. Uh, my wife's just a little bit younger than that. Um, so we've been doing it for about two years. It's um, We got introduced by a friend of ours who's also an avid uh, war gamer. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said, why don't you come out and take a look and see what's going on and see if you like it. We were went out to first event just walking around as civilians not doing much of anything and by the end of the day we were hooked and and partially kitted out and ready to go okay so, and and what type of impression uh, are you currently doing right now uh we currently do uh, war of 1812 so uh, i do the 19th light dragoons which is the only uh, regular british cavalry unit to serve in the canadas there was another one uh, down south in the U.S. stateside, but uh, they were all mostly uh, dismounts. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we do light cavalry, um, and then recently, well, my wife's from Malta, and uh, we went back there in August of this year, and that is, you may know, but some of your listeners may not, it's this tiny little island between Sicily and Libya, and sat right on the main supply lines for the uh, African, uh, for North Africa during World War II absolutely essential to maintain control and they got the daylights bombed out of mm-hmm. it um, so once we went there my wife uh, started to hook back into some of her personal history from World War II and her family and what they'd done there and she's gotten real keen on doing World War II impressions so mm-hmm. we're planning on ramping that up for next year as well okay and uh, what, what type of impression for World War II are you, are you looking at Right now, um, you know, as I said, I'm not a young man in my 20s anymore, so um, I'm going to be leaning towards uh, a home guard impression. Okay. Or LDV. LDV is actually really nice because all you need is a suit and a hat and an armband, and you're good to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, and LDV is? Local defense volunteers. Okay. So that was initially uh, what the home guard started out as. Um and it's got some really, really interesting possibilities. Obviously, mm-hmm. the uh, the Dad's Army series is a huge right. influence. Uh, but there's a lot more to it than that. Uh, and by 
it was about 42, they started drafting into the home guard and using that as uh, basically as a training depot for young guys mm-hmm. uh, before they went into regular forces, but also um, manning anti-aircraft positions and that kind of thing, providing local security. A lot of the, the scout work was taken away from, right. uh, from the infantry so they could do proper jobs. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, with your impression of the 19th Light, Light Dragoons, what type of uh, kit are you are you looking at having? Well, it really depends. Uh, we're trying to nail that down right now. So right now I'm in what's called a stable jacket, um, and then we'll have gray or white pants depending on, on what kind of impression you're doing. Um, then you're looking at a muzzle-loading musket. Uh, we tend to use carbines, so it'll be an Elliot is the one I carry, which goes right back to Revoir. Uh, it was used right up into this period, and, and in fact, in Mexico later. Then some of the other guys will carry uh, what are called pagets, which is essentially a pistol with a stock. Mm-hmm. Uh, no use beyond you know 30 yards. Uh, then we also carry uh, the 1796 Light Dragoon Saber as well. Do some work with that. So all, all told, told, it's you know you're in for probably over a thousand by the time it's said and done. Mm-hmm. That's for the basic kit, and then you can get into the Dolman, um, which is like a fancy Hussar-style jacket with all the yeah. lace on the front. Mm-hmm. And that's about a thousand in and of itself. Wow. Uh, depending on how you want to go with the helmet, you can go to the older-style Tarleton. Uh, again, going back to Rev War, that's the guy that designed it. Um, and that's and a that's, couple hundred That's Bannister Tarleton, who was so uh, accurately portrayed in the movie The Patriot, right? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure which SS Unity was part of, but yeah, apparently. <laughs> we can talk about that later, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then, unfortunately, uh, right in the middle of the War of 1812, Napoleon managed to get himself defeated, mm-hmm. and uh, the Prince Regent decided he'd really like his all his cavalry to look like. French cavalry, and we got a whole new uniform mm-hmm. here in 1814. Well, I guess just before, you know, just before uh, Waterloo, of course. Yeah. So it, if you want to invest in that, that's another chunk of change. Sure. And and that for me, I just do a I do a foot impression. But uh, two other members of the unit uh, ride. We have a other couple other people that come out from time to time that also ride. Mm-hmm. But then you're into a horse on top right. of that. Basically, that's like having a second car. Yeah, well, it's like having a second job, also. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I, I've I've got a number of friends who are are horse people. I'm I'm not a horse person myself. Uh, on some level, I can understand the appeal, but uh, to me, uh, horses are kind of like U.S. Marines in that they are uh, smelly, expensive, and dangerous. <laughs> and uh, there's usually another. Another adjective I'll apply to that, but I'll let your imagination take you where you will on that one. But well, uh, I, I, I see them like big goofy dogs. Yeah. Um, you know, they're about that same level of intelligence. They're really mm-hmm. nice to hang around with. Uh, the other thing we have is our, our which is our mistress of horse, uh, rather than our master of horse, is a mounted police officer okay. in one of the local forces up here and does horse training as part of her duties there. So um, our one horse hero. Uh, he's a Canadian, so uh, a Canadian breed, 
and he is an ex-police horse and the things she can do when she's on you know riding him are just phenomenal mm-hmm. uh, he's really fun to work with uh, get a lot of fun out of that but again you know that's some very very specialized skills even within the reenacting world mm-hmm. sure have that and um the, the types of events that you go to, are they mostly encampments or have you been doing battle reenactments? Uh, what, what have you been doing with, with this aspect of your hobby life? Well, there's usually, there's, there's three basic things we get in, we get involved with. The first is an education day mm-hmm. where we'll go to a, a site, um, not necessarily a Parks Canada site, but you know, one of the local ones and they'll bus in school kids. Mm-hmm. So we'll do demonstrations. Uh, the one we just did up in Dunvegan this year was uh, a lot of sword fighting. So we went through all the the Roworth manual of uh, foot sword combat with the saber and then handed the kids boffer swords and let them go at it. Mm-hmm. So that's one, and there's other educational aspects to that as well. My wife will do a camp follower impression. They'll talk about cooking and repairing clothes and all that mm-hmm. kind of thing that they would have done. The second kind is just basically an encampment, which is more um, more for the general public. So it's not it's less educational, more interactive, if that makes sense. Sure. So like we don't have a training plan or anything, but people come by. They say, you know, do you really sleep in that tent? Well, yes, yes, we do. Is that a real fire? Is that you know? <laughs> yes, yes, it is. <laughs> it's stupid questions you get. It's amazing. Well, well the, not stupid. The I'm only informed. stupid question is the one that goes unasked. Yeah. So. So get that. And then typically with that kind of event as well, there's usually uh, a battle on the Saturday night and a battle on the Sunday. So okay. there'll be a couple of battles through it okay. as well. And uh, now with the safety regulations, my under, my limited understanding is, of course, you know, you never, never, ever, ever, ever have an actual projectile of any kind. It's just a, what would in modern terms be a blank charge. And, uh, and, and well, the, just to be perfectly safe, you fire well above the heads of, of your opponents, right? It, it It's the classic reenactor pose where they're, you know, they're like, they're firing salutes. Yeah. You know, 45 degree angle. It's, it can be, that depends on how close you are to the, uh, to the opposing force. We'll typically use a paper cartridge, much like they would have used during the period, of mm-hmm. course, without the ball. Right. Um, so you tear it off with your teeth, just like you see in Sharp and all the good movies. Mm-hmm. Dump the charge down, and then you throw the paper on the ground, which typically you would not have done. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was your wadding to go around right. the ball. We don't ram, so ramrods never come out when you're mm-hmm. on the field. Um, and that's just to ensure that nothing's flying downrange. Right. Uh, there's there's no possibility of anybody getting injured. Mm-hmm. Uh, another thing we'll use is uh, that we'll see little brass flash guards around the around the pan, mm-hmm. and that's to stop basically uh, powder from flying into the face of the guy next to you. Right. Not period, but again, really useful for safety. And, you know, right. Yeah, because the no last thing, yeah, the last thing you want to do is you know suffer powder burns for the sake of fun. They're they're not fun. <laughs> yeah. They do happen from time to time, even with all the safety measures. And yeah, it's uh, you get a sting off of it. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, very interesting. And um, with the with the home guard impression or World War II impression, mm-hmm. um, are you looking to uh, do both in parallel, or kind of switch off season to season, or did you have you got given that much thought yet? Haven't given a lot of thought to it yet. It's probably. Um, 
the issue is finding enough weekends in a year. Right. When right. it's not snowing. Well, you know, living up in Ottawa, that's that's not a. <laughs> you don't have much choice there. It's gonna snow. It's gonna snow through the winter. Uh, I think there's one down in Plattsburgh. There's an 1812 down in Plattsburgh. They do in the winter. I think. I think it's mm -hmm. Plattsburgh. But uh, you know, I've done winter camping. Yeah, it's not fun. No, no, it's it's not. And it's best avoided. I find. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a little easier for us. So we'll we'll probably find. Uh, we'll probably switch weekends on events. We'll have to see what's coming up as well. Mm -hmm. Um. There's a good friend of ours who is the man of a thousand impressions. I'm not sure exactly how many he does, but uh, he's been one of the other prime movers in getting a home guard impression going. Okay. Um, so he's fairly well tapped into what's going in in some of the other periods. Mm -hmm. uh, there is a fairly large World War II community up here as sure. well, so I'm going to touch base with them and see, see how they work and what they want to do and uh, take it from there. Okay. Um, now, as far as your reenacting, dovetailing, or crossing over into your wargaming, uh, has there been much cross-pollination there? It's a little weird um, in that my personal interest is, has been ancients, and then a long stretch, and then for the longest time was ancients, and then jumped right to World War II, mm -hmm. uh, and then moderns. Now... Um, you know, later on, I started backdating into colonials, and I kind of stopped there um, with no real interest in World War One. I. I looked at Napoleonics, said, "Okay, I'm going to need a thousand figures, and I'm going to be <laughs> painting uh, leopard skin shabracks on the French cavalry." And it's just like, no, I'm not going there. Mm -hmm. uh, but having ex been exposed to the 1812, it gives a much smaller skirmishy kind of game. Yeah, and uh, certainly my interest is more there now. Also, having done the drill, having been in the formations, having done a lot of research into it, um, it certainly kindled an interest in uh, gaming that period as well. Now, my unit commander has uh, a ton of Americans and British. My unit commander has a ton of Americans and British for 18, 12, and 15 millimeters. So he's just jonesing to, uh, to get a game going with that. Mm -hmm. We've done a couple of board games for 18, 12 as well. So yeah, I, I would say that uh, the cross pollination has kind of been from the reenacting into the war gaming. Mm -hmm. um, as far as World War II stuff, that went the other way, and that uh, actually wrote up a list for Home Guard for Two Fat Lardy's Chain of Command rules. Yeah, and wound up doing a lot of research there that's going to play back into the reenactment. Yeah, side of it. And and I would say if to the listeners, if you're not familiar with, well, first off, Two Fat Lardy's, you need to get yourself familiar with Two Fat Lardies, a great, great game company out of Britain who are making some, for lack of a better term, they're, in my opinion, the most innovative rules out there. And Chain and Command in particular is, it's, it's just about everything I want in a platoon-level, skirmishy kind of World War II game. Oh, abs absolutely, absolutely. I started with um, I Ain't Been Shot, Mum. Mm -hmm. and looking at that but uh, I'd gone over to England a couple of years ago with the family and picked up a home guard force but, and then found out they really didn't deploy in company size units so it was always platoon and smaller mm -hmm. so that flipped me over to uh, to the chain of command but the Lardy's rules are brilliant they're really yeah. creative they will punish you for not using correct tactics yes absolutely um, I remember I think it was my first or second game I charged into a German position with a light LMG and it just everybody got wiped out yeah. Um, like, 
like you don't do that again. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> the burnt hand teaches best is definitely something that uh, that's an axiom that definitely applies to uh, the Lardy's rules. Because if you don't use, like you said, proper tactics, then you you will get punished for it. And there's not much room for, um, I guess you'd say, anachronistic uh, ideas on how to on how to move and move, shoot, and communicate in in that particular era. Exactly. Um, and just to backpedal just a little bit for the listeners, uh, I ain't been shot. Mom is also World War II set, but that's geared more towards uh, company command level. So yep. you're gonna have uh, individual platoons as your for lack of a better term, your maneuver pieces. Whereas in Chain of Command, you've got uh, weapons teams and squads. Well, you're almost down at the section level, so you have a section and a fire team. So you, well, you'd have a rifle team and uh, as a maneuver unit, and uh, then your LMG. Right. But they would typically be multi-based, mm-hmm. whereas Chain of Command is really, uh, it does well with single-based right. figures. Um, again, I have been shot mum. Uh, it's much easier to put a platoon of armor on the table. Chain of command, you're lucky if you get one armored vehicle. Right. That's really, uh, the rules doesn't really support a lot more than that. Yeah. Although, um, uh, as you know, uh, there is big chain of command, which you can kind of get into that multi-platoon level bigger right. game with more armor if that's what floats your boat. And it does, and it's it does float my boat, and it is a lot of fun. Um not to brag about beating up on my brother as I have in episodes past, but um, I remember a game. Well, it's the one big chain of command game that I've played and just had a blast. We both brought, oh, three platoons of infantry, my Germans, his U.S., and I had a platoon of Stugs, uh, assault guns, and he had a platoon of Shermans, and his Shermans brewed up real nice. In, in short order so it's uh, trust me I don't always beat my brother at games but it's awfully memorable when I do so oh it's a lot of a lot of fun what were you running on the Stugs was it the long 75s or the yeah, little short they were, AT chuckers no they were the long 75s oh yeah yeah that's that's painful yeah that's painful oh yeah yeah it was uh that was not not a good day for for his side but since we're talking period tactics, um, we might as well just ask if your reenactment has informed your understanding and appreciation of period tactics uh, for your units in wargaming. Um, again, you know, given that I'm just getting into that Napoleonic era and looking at that now, I would say yes, absolutely. Uh, now it's linear tactics, it's mass units, uh, you're marching shoulder to shoulder. Uh, so that, that level of drill is far more important uh, in the Napoleonic period, that, mm-hmm. that horse and musket period. Um, but it makes you think a little bit more about how you're doing things and why things are done. Uh, and I think when you start looking at the why, that will translate across periods. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, why do you have two guys out in a skirmish team in Napoleonic? That kind of informs how you use those tactics. So when you ramp it up to World War II, how do you handle your scout teams? the ideas are similar if the actual right. implementation is a little bit different. Right. Um, but yeah, there's 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 a lot there to look at. Uh, firing speed, um, the necessity of volleys, concentration of firepower, all that kind of thing plays into it. And with us, which is actually really uh, unusual, I'm 
not sure, especially the ACW guys, the, the Civil War guys, but up here, no one plays with swords mm-hmm. because it's far too uh, far too dangerous. Right. Well, it's considered to be far too dangerous. You can do it safely, and you can do demonstrations safely, but uh, playing with the, the you know using swords and uh, working with them, you get tired awfully fast. Yeah. And you know the idea in a lot of rules you'll see is it was you know doesn't matter medieval Napoleonic these these ideas that you're going to melee for turn after turn after turn swinging a couple of pounds of steel on the end of your arm just that doesn't make any sense right you know right. it's it's uh, it's tough it's hard <laughs> yeah one there's one rule set that I know of immediately that springs to mind that that actually models that and that is Henry Hyde's shot steel and stone. Um, if you're involved in a in a melee, then if you're invo- engaged in a melee for more than I think it's either two or three turns, then your units really start to degrade quickly just from being stuck in that long. I I agree. There's there's other scene that um, you know across periods that you get that first attack, that initial melee, you mm-hmm. come in as fresh. Right. And then after that, you've shot your bolt, and if you get into another one, you're going to be your your performance is degraded. You're not as effective. Mm-hmm. So there is some understanding of that, but uh, but when you do it and you and you're swinging this thing and your shoulder starts to hurt after a couple of minutes, uh, yeah, you get an appreciation for yeah. how, how hard it is. Oh yeah. Well, uh, I mean, there's the there's the flip side of that is of course is you know city slicker accountants and taxi drivers and male mailmen in their 30s and 40s as opposed to being a well-drilled well-trained disciplined soldier in his 20s who does it every day for three or four years on end there there's an argument there but at the same time it's yeah it's not easy doing that stuff for a long time even back in the day when i was doing it every day it wasn't you know, when I was on active duty, it wasn't easy to do that sort of thing. Anytime, uh, I guess the closest I would say I've been in a melee situation like that is messing around with pugil sticks, which is basically right. imagine a a Q-tip that's four feet long with big padded ends on it, and you're smacking another guy upside the head while you're wearing a, a football helmet. And you get tired fast doing that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, our, our one of our main sword instructors is, um, you know, he's still a Canadian Reg Force, um, and he also he does this on the side. So the man is fit. Uh, yeah. You know, he's still still serving, and he's still up on all his fitness calls, and you know he's constantly. You got to make sure that you don't wreck your shoulders doing this, and make sure uh, that you take the proper precautions and the proper training and the stretching and everything else to make sure you don't injure yourself. Mm-hmm. And it's something he has to do, even as a you know someone who is fit and who is still uh, at the top of their game performance-wise. Yeah, it takes a lot out of you. Um, now the one the one thing I would say, we, uh, the manual we use is, is the Roworth manual, which was developed um, right at the end of, of uh, the 1700s, specifically to train British cavalry that might have just been. Uh, join the, the unit right off the street mm-hmm. so these would be literally you know guys from the city maybe tradesmen who can't perform their trade anymore who are not particularly healthy and they're joining the army because they're getting three squares a day 
which they're not getting on Civvy Street. Right. So it's some very basic, very simplistic training, but highly, highly effective because of that. It's it's pretty quick to pick up the basics. Mm-hmm. But it, that 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 consideration was was there as well. So you kind of do get. You understand that some guy from a slum in London, you know, you stick him up on a horse and give him a sword and say, start swinging, because there's the Americans, off you go, or there's the French, off you go. You know, it, it's a little more realistic, I think, than uh, than what we like to think. Uh, certainly the, the level of, of manpower and the, the, uh, the quality of manpower that they were using back then, especially in the Napoleonic Wars, was nothing like what we see today. Right. You know, guys that we... That, we would never let into any army these days. Where, yeah, they give them a musket, throw them in line, right? Set them right. off to battle. Oh yeah, I think I think Wellington referred to the the average British soldier affectionately as the dregs. Oh, that they were, that they were. And they they certainly weren't very well regarded in their own country, let alone countries where they were campaigning. Well, I mean Kipling's poem Tommy. Right? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, that's a classic. Yeah. That's a classic. Yeah, so now you've made me I'm going to have to put Tommy into the show notes now, but that's okay cuz it's a great poem. <laughs> it's off I think it's on um on um Gutenberg has oh, most yeah. of Kettling's works. Oh yeah. As yeah. Well. Yeah, it's a, it's a well-known well-known uh, poem. Yeah, no no problems yeah. there. I I don't mind linking to it. That's fine by me. Um what uh what would you say is probably in in your short career as a as a reenactor? Um, are there any particularly memorable or interesting moments uh, from that time? Uh, there's it, it depends. They tend to be little ones that that come along. Um, there's a there's one. Uh, the Nineteenth Light Dragoons was originally raised for service in India. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where we ran into Wellington when we were still Wellesley. And um, we are involved in the Battle of Assay. But as a British cavalry unit, we'd gone over there with the standard dress rags that, you know, no facial hair. Yeah. Uh, we arrived in India, and basically the native population looked at all these bald-faced men and went, you know, okay, you're boys. We have no respect for you. Mm-hmm. So we were given the permission, or actually instructed, to start growing mustaches. So we had um, we had a, a, one of these school events, and uh, was talking. You know, I like to place the War of 1812 in the greater picture, and you know, talking about it as as a world as part of a world war that England was also waging against France, Germany, and all the other little states that were involved with the Napoleonic conflict, and it really draws all the way across. So it was a young uh, East Asian man came by, and he was talking, and he asked about the mustache, and I was saying, well, no, I have the mustache, because when my ancestors went over to your country, your ancestors laughed at, them, laughed at them and called them boys, and they had no respect for them. And we went through the rest of the rest of the demonstration, mm-hmm. and they're getting ready to jump back on the buses, and he comes back over, and he says, I'm a man, I have a mustache too. <laughs> and he points to this tiny little black feet peach fuzz on the top of his of his lip but he was just so happy and he was so proud <laughs> that that was considered to be the manly thing yeah so that, that was that was one fun moment uh there's another one there's a fort just south of ottawa uh right down on the st Lawrence river across from i think it's across from ogdensburg called fort wellington mm-hmm. uh it was originally built with the first fort was built there for 1812 and then it was substantially rebuilt 
uh, a little bit later and was manned to prevent uh, those damn Yankees from coming back across the border. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically from there, with, with the guns they have, they can shell Optinsburg fairly easily. Right. But we've, uh, we hooked up with, our, with Parks Canada down there and we kind of base ourselves out of there. And there was one point, uh, it was just a drill day, we were gonna go down, practice a few things. So it was my uh, captain, Captain Williams, Dan, uh, my unit commander and I, we were gonna practice some sword drill. And so we're there fully kitted up and we have our sabers out and there's a gun carriage off to the right. And we've got our two little glasses of port on there and we're just going through the drills. And because of the way the walls are um, around the fort, it's a you know an earth wall fort. You can't see the outside world, you know. So there you are in in the middle of a fort, uh, doing period drill in period dress with period drink close to hand, and it was just uh, just a magical moment. Really, mm-hmm. really, yeah, really, really nice. Um, some of the other ones. Uh, because we're light cavalry and, and light cavalry in Britain wore a blue tunic uh, and the American cavalry during this period also wore blue tunics we usually get tasked to go off and play Americans mm-hmm. uh, so there's one eventful day uh, one weekend actually where I was shot by the Americans I think on Saturday and then on Saturday afternoon and then on Saturday evening I was scalped by British Indians and then I was shot by the British on Sunday <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's like yeah you wind up all these different things that happen on the field it's 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 great fun so, right it, it reminds me of a, of a piece of trivia from the movie Gettysburg where it said that there was a reenactor who had uniforms for both the the Union and Confederate forces, and due to a fluke in editing, he shoots himself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's that's par for the course. Yeah. The <laughs> um, I, I think I would be remiss if I didn't ask uh, a current reenactor about, oh, for lack of a better term, controversial reenacting choices, and specifically, I mean those folks who they choose to reenact for lack of a better term the bad guys and I, now I'm going to have to uh, link to that uh, Mitchell and Webb uh, sketch about the SS but oh uh, that one oh That's yeah brilliant. Hans yeah. are we the baddies um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, there have been instances where in recent memory where people of British or American nationality have taken to reenacting SS units and are, I don't know, maybe taking a little bit too much joy in it, for lack of a better term. Um, I'll, uh, I, I forget which war game show it was. I think it was actually Salute, where oh, there, yeah, was a, the there. Yeah. there was a substantial reenactment group that was solely doing SS to include home front type people and that caused a, a pretty big stir and I, I believe they were asked not to come back it it's it's an issue um, when I first started looking into reenacting I actually asked some of my wargamer buddies um, on one of the forums and one of the guys came back and he said I, I hate them 
Uh, and I said, "Why?" And I said, "This is French Imperial Guard pushed me down the stairs at one of the of one of the events in the UK." <laughs> And it got into the head they were French Imperial Guard and everybody was going to move out of the way for them. And they just acted like jerks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was a family show, so we'll keep the language to a minimum. Thank you. <laughs> uh, in terms of interesting reenacting choices, um, someone has to be the bad guy. Right. Otherwise, it's a, it's really it's a one-sided event. Um I think there's a lack of appreciation of exactly who some of these units were and what they did. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a glorification of it. Um, and we can get very philosophical on this. And I, and I think part of the problem is that when, um, after the end of the Second World War, we went immediately into the Cold War. Um, and we also have a lot of resources and a lot of uh, histories translated into English from the German side. And some of these, of course, are you know, people like Guderian uh, and Rommel, who are professional soldiers without too much political taint. But others, uh, you know, guys like Whitman, uh, who's off destroying the communist hordes on the Eastern Front and saving Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's sort of more acceptance of that. Yeah. Uh, I was doing some digging today, actually, and there was a group called Hayag, uh, I forget what it stands for. It's a German group, but they were uh, ex-SS officers who went on a concerted program of sanitizing the Waffen SS and how they appeared in history books. And mm-hmm. this is going right back to the end of the war. Right. So there's, there's. I'm not sure if all the reenactors who want to do this, or, you know, want to portray SS, want to portray some of these other units, are really cognizant of what they are. Right. And what they represent. Some of them are, um, and certainly I've, you know, within the reenacting community, it trends conservative, uh, which is fine. Um, but unfortunately, sometimes it goes a little right wing too. Yeah. And, and some of the less palatable things on the extreme right do tend to show up, you know, because it's guys and guns. Right. Um, now, now, to be fair, I, I've been studying military history for some time. And I can't find any examples of any military or paramilitary force that is, you know, quote unquote, completely clean. Oh, God, nobody's clean. Yeah, no one's clean. But when you are part of a fighting force that has stated political national objectives that include genocide, that makes it a little bit different. It certainly does. Um, again, you can get very complicated on that. Uh, and the you know, Eastern Front and Western Front are two completely different fights. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, you, you wind up with something similar in the Pacific, where it, it the traditional rules, if you can call them that, of warfare disappeared and the gloves right. were off. Um, I think it was, was it LeMay that said, uh, you know, after the bombing, I think it was LeMay, uh, after the bombing of Japan, they said if we lost, they would have had us for a war crime. You know, uh, both, neither side is completely clean, but I don't think the party units, well, they were party units. Okay, it was Waffen-SS, not Alamein-SS, but still, they were, they were very much dedicated towards the promotion of Nazi ideals. Right. Whereas the Wehrmacht, at least you could, for the most part, you can say that they were serving soldiers, serving their state, 
and you know the recognized civilian government of that. Right. Um, I personally, I just have a big problem with, with SS. Um, mm-hmm. Don't like them. Uh, wouldn't swear for them on a dark night. <laughs> you know, it's, it's um, you know, my my parents were in England during the war. My wife's parents were in Malta during the war. Mm-hmm. Um, I really have no time for for Nazis. Germans, no problem. Good people, no issue there. Um, and I'm old enough too that uh, you know I've run into people who were in. Uh, death camps and things like yeah. that. I've spoken with them, and it's just there's no, there's no comparison. Um, I would even go so far as as many many years ago. Uh, my father's a geologist, and they had an exchange program probably about 1970 uh, with a with a um, geologist from Poland. So he came over to Canada with his wife. Now at that time, Poland, of course, was communist and occupied by the Russians. Right. So their kids had to stay back in Poland to ensure that they returned. You know, and they got to talking, and he said, "Well, you know, how bad is it under the Russians?" And he says, "You know, it's bad. Uh, we'd rather have a free Poland, but nothing will compare to what it was like under the Germans. Nothing." Mm-hmm. Uh, and we need to be cognizant of that. We need to remember that. Uh, you know, however imposing a military force the Germans were, and they were extremely professional, extremely effective, especially in the beginning, there's an underpinning of, you know, racism and violence that uh, you can't escape. Right. You can't escape. But, yeah. uh, so in terms of reenacting, um, if it floats your boat, you know, uh, be my guest. Um, it's not something I would ever do uh, intentionally, or, 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 or at least as a first choice. I can see maybe if we go further with the Home Guard, that we'll need a Gestapo guy to come around, or we'll need, we might need some SS or you know, standard Wehrmacht uh, if we're doing something like Sea Lion mm-hmm. with the, with the uh, post-invasion occupation. That might be useful, but again, it's within the context of, of talking about the history and demonstrating the history, and not glorifying the role that these guys played. Right. Now the other thing I see, and this is just reenacting in general, and I don't want to, I don't want to slander anybody. Sure. Um, it's an expensive hobby, so it trends older. Uh, we got a lot of older guys that have the money to buy the kit, and after thirty, after forty, you get a little portly, a little out of shape. So it's kind of funny seeing, um, you know, pictures of reenactors that. Uh, um, are of ample dimensions trying to squeeze themselves into Falschmjäger or SS mm-hmm. uniforms. It's just, it's a little ridiculous. Yeah. Well, well, to be fair, Sergeant Schultz was Luftwaffe. <laughs> yeah, but he, yeah, he's Luftwaffe. You could certainly do that impression. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's that's why I'm looking at Home Guard. You know, I can be, uh, do something on Captain Mannering's side, a little, little round, you know. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, it's, uh, it's there. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's a, you know, being being in uh, Illinois, there's there's a there's a couple of uh, reenactment groups around here. Also, there mm-hmm. there's some World War II guys. Um, I don't know of any German units around here. Uh, SS or Waffen, uh, you know, Waffen SS or Wehrmacht or, or anybody yeah. for that matter. But uh, American Civil War is awfully popular. Uh, here in the Midwest, 
United States. And mm-hmm. um, surprisingly or not surprisingly, there are Confederate and and Union units all over the place, not just in the South or not just in the North. And uh, the recent, uh, well, within the last two, two, three years, the, the brouhaha over the, the quote-unquote Confederate battle flag um, has certainly raised similar questions here in the United States. And, oh, absolutely. And uh, to the point where, um, well, actually, uh, now that I think about it, a Canadian company that makes uh, a TV show called How It's Made. Um, right. When, when they did their piece on how uh, miniature soldiers are made, miniature you know, war game figures are made, they visited the Perrys, and I was really getting into the episode. And for broadcast here in the United States, at least, a box of Perry Confederate plastic soldiers had the Confederate flag blurred out during the during the broadcast. And I mean, we're starting to get into more of the, you know, okay, where do we draw the line with, uh, with glorification and just simply reporting history as it happened. You know, but if you take that to extremes, if you buy a model kit of an HE-111 in Germany, the swastika decals are not included in the kit. I, I can kind of see that for Germany, um, and I understand why they went that way. It had such a huge negative impact on, mm-hmm. on Germans, let alone the rest of the rest of Europe. Right. That, um, and, of course, with the rise of the neo-Nazi movement... Uh, yeah, you don't want that floating around. You don't want to promote that. You don't want to glorify that in any way. Now, you can still use it for educational purposes. You can still use all the regalia you want if it's within an educational context. Uh, now, for the Confederate battle flag, uh, I'm really a two, of two minds on that. Well, it, it just in general, um, it's part of history. It's there. Right. Uh, you can't not show it. It gets it's it's a little weird um, to say that you know. Okay, well we're not going to show the Confederate battle flag on a Confederate soldier um, on a war games table for a Confederate battle. Uh, that's that doesn't seem to make any sense to me. Whether you want it flying over your state legislature, um, that is something that you know the American people are going to have to decide. Um, I know as a Canadian, you know, I don't have any dog in that particular fight, but it, it I would find it a little disturbing. Mm-hmm. But I would also understand where it's coming from. Um, I mean, your civil war had such a huge effect on the population as a whole. Um, you know, there's a lot of very negative reasons why that war started and why it was fought, but still people died, family members died. And, you know, if, if you're going to honor the Confederate side of it, then maybe you will want a flag on a Confederate war grave monument or something right. like that. Right. Uh, it's, it's definitely a touchy subject and one that's not necessarily easy to, to handle, but I think it's as a, as a larger discussion within our, within our society, I think it definitely needs to happen. One thing that kind of makes me do a double take is I live in Illinois and granted I've, I live in a part of Illinois that borders with Missouri, which was considered a, a border state because it was not part of the Confederacy, but they still had legal slavery during the war. And 
one thing here in my part of Illinois is that there are an awful lot of people that drive around with Confederate flag stickers on their car. And to the point where there's, you know, within, you know, I can step out my front door and I can see a flagpole with a Confederate flag waving on it. And it's morphed to the point where it's not necessarily about the Confederacy anymore. I think part of it is, hey, I'm a rebel. I'm going to do what I want. And I think to some degree, part of it is just a big F you to, you know, to people who you know, want to tell me what to do. And, uh, that's, I, I don't know. It's, it's just weird seeing it on a vehicle around here or on a house around here because, well, you know, just up the road from me in a little town called Summer Hill, there's a bronze statue dedicated to the union soldiers who came from Pike County and fought in the civil war. So I, I don't have any easy answers to that, but it's, no, there, there, there really isn't, and you know, and it's certainly uh, there's an awful lot of Gillilands who emigrated from Ireland around that time or, or prior to that time and wound up in the south. Um, any any family connection I have to the north, it's all Southerners. Mm-hmm. You know, there's very few that, that went up in the north. They're all, uh, all all Ulster Irishmen with that streak. Um, as for the symbology of it, it it's it's a complicated oh, complicated yeah. issue and you know i i think what you know what an african-american must think when they mm. see this stuff it's got to be a little disconcerting to see it come out like that um but on the other hand you know if if you are the, the descendant of a civil war general you know should you deny that or or, or should you celebrate it i don't know Right. I don't know. Yeah, there's there's certainly uh, no easy answers here, and and it's and it's, unfortunately it's one of those things where, regardless of your intent, you have to understand that it will be interpreted a way in a way that very well will be contrary to to your intent, and you if you're going to display that you ha- are gonna have to understand that and not hide behind. Well, that's not what I meant. It's 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 a tough one as well, and and and. And what you wind up with the glorification of essentially evil acts, you know, coming from a British background, you know, we were the bad guys across a greater chunk of the world for a very long time. You know, we mm-hmm. went in and we conquered these people, we took them over. And uh, when I run into an East Asian or an Indian or, or someone from Pakistan, and they don't speak highly of the British, uh, and of people who I'm quite proud of for different reasons you know you got to understand there's a context to it sure there's fallout from it and you know the past is not rosy uh, and the things that that one might want to take pride in aren't necessarily good things or sometimes they are you know but it's 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 never simple you can never just slap a slap a flag up and, and have it say what you want it to say everything all these symbols are loaded oh yeah yeah it's 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 definitely worthy of further study and further discussion, and and I'm glad that we live in we both live in societies that allow that discussion to take place. Yeah, it, it's. I'm a big believer of you know let the ugly people be out, let them have a voice, so right. you can identify them and isolate them and know who they are, and when we start repressing these things, um, 
then you start running into trouble. You know, things like the reissue of Mein Kampf, you know, people say, oh, you shouldn't have that out there. You don't want to give people ideas. Well, then if you don't release it, then you wind up with the versions that are uh, put out by these other Nazi groups, and then you get a skewed image, and it becomes forbidden knowledge. It becomes more interesting, more exciting. What are they trying to hide? Um, and there's been some, you know, I've run into some fairly prominent people who should know better, like, have you read this book and see what the Jews are doing because they don't have that historical context it's something right. that's it's a revealed secret all of a sudden mm -hmm. and I think you know that's why free speech is so important right uh, you know, let them run their mouths let them show who they are so we know who they are and we can uh, identify them and counteract their arguments right right um, yeah this, these are all really interesting uh it, it, it speaks to the larger issue, you know, within wargaming itself. I mean, we could have an entire, you know, we could have an entire uh, episode just on, you know, what's what's okay to model in a wargame and what's not. You know, is, you know, there's there's a line in there somewhere. And you know, me personally, I've I've tackled this myself when I can, you know, I consider doing a wargaming project uh, revolving around the breakup of Yugoslavia, and. Mm -hmm. You know, in my reading and in research, and having been there, in in '97, granted after the shooting stopped, there's there's just no way to extract a a purely military scenario from from what happened over there. There's always some level of paramilitary or uh, straight up military atrocity going on around the corner, or you know the you know, every battle was was just fraught with with these issues, and you know that. And there's also the you know it's too soon argument as well. But uh, you know that, that's that's something that's worth discussing, definitely, because you know some people might see what we do as somewhat macabre, and well, you're you're getting enjoyment from from reenacting people's deaths. Well, yes and no. But, you know, and that's why I think it's interesting why people are going towards things like the uh, Victorian science fiction, like we mentioned earlier. You know, it, it removes certain cultural sensibilities from the equation, and you still get to have guys with pith helmets and red coats. It, it certainly does, but I think if you want to find people uh, who are... I wouldn't call them anti-pacifist, you know, not pacifist per se, but anti-war. First, go find a veteran, and then following that, find uh, find a war gamer who's done their studying. And I think it, you know, okay, so do we portray violence and death on our tables? But I think for for a lot of us, if you, you know, in in my book, if you're doing it the right way, you're also understanding what that means, or 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 understanding a small element of what that means. Right. Um, and you know you get attached to a unit you've painted it up you put it on the table and they all get wiped out it's not you know, maybe for some people it's for a counter but you can feel a real sense of loss mm -hmm. when that unit goes down and it, it will never ever mirror what happens in actual warfare you kind of get that understanding you start reading regimental histories to find out you know i'm setting up a battle for northern europe and you know the the unit i'm looking at they went through 10 tanks in a day and, and and 15, 20 casualties. 
mm-hmm. just gone. Um, you get better, you get more exposure to it, and I think you get a better understanding of it. So, on the one hand, yes, you know, it is glorification of death. On the other hand, it's an attempt to understand what this means, um, you know, how it works, and, and how to potentially to avoid it. You know, if you understand something, then, then you know how to not do it in the future. Right. Um, I think too that you know a lot of the attraction for wargaming it is uh, it's a battle of intellects across a table, you know, right. often a friendly battle, and really that becomes the the key. And, and if you want to take to its simplest terms, you can go down to chess or something like Go. Right. Um, and, and seek it there. Um, I'm not sure where I kind of head with that one, <laughs> kind of drifting a bit. But I also I also know uh, there's a friend of mine whose grandfather on one side was drafted into uh, SS Hitler Youth, mm-hmm. and toward the end of the war, you know, it was not voluntary service anymore. Your your number came up, and they threw you to whatever unit they were in. So he will war game. He has a I think it's Flames of War. He's got a Hitler Youth uh, unit for that. Mm-hmm. But that's in part to understand his grandfather's experience, right. to understand the history of his own family. He's also very interested in, uh, in cavalry and, and mounted warfare in all periods. So he has uh, a Florian Geyer cavalry unit that, that served on the Eastern Front. And they were not nice people at all. Uh, certainly one of the, the less reputable SS units. They got up to all kinds of anti partisan stuff. Mm-hmm. But again, it's it's not to glorify those units, but to understand them, right? And to educate yourself on them. So it's like, how did how do horse soldiers work from you know medieval up to modern times? Uh, and that's one of the few Western units that was out there, right? That was still fighting on horseback in the Second War. But it's no, there's no real sense of glorification. It's a sense of understanding and, and self education, right? And and I think looking at the larger topic of both wargaming and reenactment, I think that's really the key. You know, it, it's fine if you want to get your, your entertainment out of it. You know, who, who yeah. am I to say how you get your fun or how you hobby? Um, but I think as long as there is that that's either stated or simply an understood goal of understanding the dynamics either ta- just simply tactically on the battlefield, but also within the greater greater operational strategic political you know the political social economic context then i think there's there's something there's certainly something more to it than just simply rolling the dice and pushing figures on a table i think so too although that can be part of it too it is it is an interesting pastime uh you know on par with bridge or poker but um it i think one of the benefits is as you say it has that educational or that, that, that informational aspect as well. Um, and of course it is uh, a multifaceted hobby. You can get into the painting of the figures, making the terrain, and working on your own rule set, which I think you're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's many, many ways of, of, of approaching it. It's got a lot a lot of merit to it. Right. Um, right. Um, I'm not sure if we've done that with death or not. <laughs> what's that? I'm not sure if we've done this to death or not. Yeah. Um, or there's a whole other show in there too. I think. Oh, oh, definitely. That and that's that's one of the great things I think about this this format that I've chosen is that we can take a look at these topics in depth, yeah. and you know, we we don't have to talk about a particular rule set, or we're not talking necessarily about uh, you know a particular line of figures or whatnot. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the the greater issues within the hobby, I think, is is a 
it's it's a, a rich mine waiting to be tapped, I guess, <laughs> for lack of a better term. Um, well, I think we're we're coming on about the amount of time that we wanted to spend tonight, both of us. Um, I want to thank you very, very much for coming on. I really enjoyed the discussion. I'm looking forward to future discussions as well. And um, is there a, does the 19th have a Facebook group or a, a web page that uh, we can send folks to? Uh, there is there's a um, there is a Facebook page for 19th Light Dragoons XIXLD, um, and there is a website as well. I think I sent you the link. Um, it's xixld.com off the top of my head, and you can come check us out. Uh, lots of 1812 groups on both sides of the border: Americans and, and uh, Canadians, some British, and even a few Indian units as well. Um, it's great fun, uh, and it's fun just to come out and uh, and see it. And the big advantage is it's on both sides of the border, so there's lots of events going on uh, on both sides. Yeah. And it's a little different from your usual uh, Civil War stuff. Yeah, yeah. It and don't get me wrong, Civil War's you know, yeah. There's there's probably more more ink has been spilled on the Civil War in the United States than than any other conflict in in human history. But uh, yeah, the War of 1812 I think gets short shrift because there's there's plenty of interesting things going on there, but you know, you ask the average, you ask the average Joe, when did the War of eighteen twelve happen? And they'll just stare at you blankly. <laughs> yeah, and, and it, it, it's an odd one in in that um, the only uh, both sides won. Yeah. Uh, as far as the British and the Americans go, and the really only the real losers were the poor, uh, you know, Native Americans, the First Nations. They're the yeah. they're the only ones really lost out of it. So. You know, the, the Americans can quite rightly say, well, they won the War of 1812. And the British can say that quite rightly, well, we won the War of 1812. And the Canadians just say, we burnt the White House. Yeah. <laughs> we so, don't like to bring that up too often. You know, well, we try to limit it to once or twice a week. Right. <laughs> well, again, Pat, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, really enjoyed the discussion. Um, thanks. And for those listening, just a reminder, if... Uh, if what you're doing with gaming isn't fun, you make it fun, okay? Uh, have a good time gaming. That is all. The Veteran Wargamer is copyright J. Arnold 2016. Show notes are available at theveteranwargamer.blogspot.com. Music courtesy of bensound.com. <laughs>